So next week, Brother Chuck, I didn't know that we're dismissing 15 minutes early, but that's on your watch, so it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> what, what is it for, for the... the uh... Oh, the service thing, okay. Thanks, Rich, for yelling out. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, we're going to... Uh, so folks can have an opportunity to see areas of service back there. Okay, good. <laughs> So, Maureen, Brother Chuck, congratulations. Uh, The Schneiders uh, just uh, welcomed their sixth or seventh. (gasps) That's terrible. (laughs) Kidding me. Toxic perfume all over. Another little girl. Is Veronica home? Last night. And are they doing good? They're doing pretty good? Do you feel left out? We're talking about Ronnie. No. Okay, good. <laughs> anyway, congratulations to you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, folks, here we are. First Thessalonians 4, verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren... Um, do you know a city in the United States um, that uh, the name of which means brotherly love? Philadelphia. That's exactly what we have here. The phrase love of the brethren means brotherly love or Philadelphia. Whether it is a city of brotherly love or not is up for grabs, but that, that's what it means. Did you know outside the New Testament this concept of brotherly love in Jewish thinking and Greek thinking was reserved to blood relatives. That makes sense. If you have a family member, another sibling, you ought to love that one, that boy, that girl, that brother, that sister. But it's the New Testament writers like Paul who co-opted the phrase so as to apply it to the body of Christ. Though we, we are not blood relatives, it's our faith in the shed blood of the Lord that makes us brothers and sisters. Otherwise, you can do away with the two words, our father. Might as well not pray that unless we see ourselves as uh, connected to the uh, one Father through the Son, the Lord Jesus, and we being brothers and sisters of one another. So as for the love of the brethren, you, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now, folks, what you're reading there is a Hebraic literary device. He is telling them there's no need for me to write to you about this, and yet he's writing to them about this. That is actually a Jewish literary technique. I'm not lying to you. It's like when your mother says to you, you know, Stuart, I know I don't need to tell you this, but my birthday is coming up. (laughs) I know you know, but I just thought I would tell you. You know, that's kind of the technique. It's such an important concept for Paul, love that we showed to one another, that he brings it up even though they've heard this before. Verse 10, for indeed you do practice it. Paul was a master of encouragement. It's not like he didn't point out people's weaknesses and flaws, but he emphasized their strengths. I commend this to you as a good technique. Generally speaking, when people are feeling built up, they're more prone to, to, to uh, take care of their weaknesses and flaws in other areas. But if the focus is always criticizing and putting down, it so reduces a person emotionally and psychologically, they just don't do well in life. So this is a good thing. I notice Paul does it a lot. He wants them to get better at this, but instead of saying to them, hey, you need to get better at this, he says, you're doing a good job. And then you'll see, he says in the text, I just want you to excel even more. Um, This is a good technique with your kids or grandkids. I call them random acts of affirmation. 
In other words, if you only affirm your kids when they get good grades or score a touchdown, I'll tell you what, those are good things, but I'll tell you what your kids are going to do. They're going to associate your words of affirmation with their performance. And they're going to say, in order to get dad or mom's positive regard, regard, I have to perform well. Well, that's a lot of stress on a kid. So you want them to be affirmed not for performance, but for personhood. You want them to feel good about themselves merely because they're yours. The relationship, you see what I mean? So out of the blue, you just want to affirm and praise just because of who they are. They're yours. So you want to be careful about only attaching hugs, praise, words of affirmation to accomplishments, not only that. So Paul here uh, is kind of a master at this. Indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So you had Christians here at Thessalonica, and you had Christians in Macedonia. Sometimes the Macedonian Christians would come to Thessalonica. It was a place of commerce. But while they are uh, in their travels from Macedonia to Thessalonica, where are they going to stay? They don't have motels in those days. They rely on the hospitality of fellow believers. Apparently, the Thessalonian believers, though they were new believers, opened up their homes to the visiting Macedonians. Paul is using this as an example to encourage them. You're already doing this, just as you did with regard to the brethren in Macedonia. And then he says, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So that's encouragement. You know, you're doing good. You're, you're running the race. You're winning the race. Keep going. Keep going. That's a whole lot better than, man, you keep acting like that. You'll never even finish the race. You know, that kind of thing, um, it's sort of, it, it, it doesn't work in terms of uh, encouragement. So that's, that's sort, of, sort of what he says. We urge you, brethren, excel still more. Someone said, the nature of Christian love is that it is is always practiced, but never mastered. Don't you find that to be true? I mean, you think you're doing good with regard to other Christians, and then you show up to church one Sunday, and you run, run into one who just ticks you off. Let's just face it. You just want to punch that one out. And, and you see your love quotient like goes way down. And you go, oh, my goodness, i got to really work on this. That's essentially what Paul is saying. It's a process of, of manifesting love to one another. Some days we do better than others, but Paul says, keep going. You're doing good. You can do better. Now, verse 11, he points out something else. I also want you to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attending to your own business. Now, what does he mean there? Some people say he means uh, uh, occupy a low profile in society. Don't call undue attention to yourself, especially by the government, because the government will clamp down on your Christianity. And if you're, uh, if you're doing too much, if you're too loud about your convictions and all the rest, the government will l- perhaps limit your Christian liberties. Maybe that's what Paul has in mind, but if that's the case, he did a lousy job at following his own advice. You kidding me? He was always stating biblical truth. He was always incurring the wrath of the local government officials. Many times he had to claim his rights, remember, as a Roman citizen even. He was in jail like a bunch of times. I don't think that's what he means. Tell me if you you like this. Uh, This is what I think he's getting at. When he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, which is sort of a contradiction in terms, he's saying, energize yourself, work hard at being quiet. That's essentially what he's saying. What does that mean? Attend to your own business. How much of your energy of mine is spent thinking about what others think about you? It's like a ton of stuff. I mean, it just saps you of energy. I know this is the right thing to do, but how's that person going to take it? Does that person like me? Does that person accept me? You know, all this kind of stuff. I think Paul is sort of saying, you know what? You should take all that energy and make it your ambition to simply be quiet and do your own stuff, mind your own business. It's not your business what other people think of you. Here's your business. Please, God. Mind your own business. In other words, perform, serve as to an audience of one. The Lord seated on the throne. Don't make 
the world, your audience. Everyone has their opinion. It's not that you should disregard people and be obnoxious, but it shouldn't be your ambition to win people's favor as an end in itself. If you do that, you're going to exhaust your, you'll deplete your resources. The Christian life's going to get to be a drag because a lot of people don't favor you and the things you do and say. And You just have to figure out, is this the thing that would give pleasure to Almighty God? On that basis, I'm going to do it. Lead a quiet life. Keep quiet. Mind your own business. Just do your thing. And then he says, um, work with your hands. What does that mean? Is he saying all the white-collar professional workers in Thessalonica need to give up their careers and start uh, engaging in manual uh, labor? No. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think he's saying this. Remember the context. He starts out by saying, I want you to love each other. Um, it's possible to take advantage of that. Some might say, you know, hey, we're told to love each other. I'm going to give you an opportunity to love me. Here's how. I'm not doing what I could do to provide for myself. I want you to provide for me. And in so doing, you'll be showing your love to me. I think in anticipation of this abuse, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. I want everyone who is able to work with their hands. Do not exploit the body of Christ. That's not what I'm getting at, Paul says. If you do that, you will sap the body of Christ of its necessary resources that other really needy people need. Now, he's not saying be ashamed of need. He's not saying despise those who come to you with a valid material need. No, no, no. He's saying those of you who are able to work, you ought to work and provide for yourself. Everyone ought to work. Now, our government could really do well to listen to the Bible in many respects. I think the welfare system in our country over the uh, decades has done tremendous harm to many, many people. I'll tell you what I mean. It doesn't mean we don't have citizens who need helps. So let's not go to the other extreme of despising those who are truly and legitimately needy of helps from the government, from the church, from society. There are folks like that. And it could be any of us, by the way. Employment can come to an end quickly. Health can diminish. A marriage could dissolve, and now a lady or a man or their single parents, they need help. So I'm not against, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I'll tell you what the welfare system has done. It has created a culture um, of dependence which has um, reduced the expectations uh, of, uh, of those receiving the helps. I'll illustrate. A man gave me this illustration in the last hour. A young eight-year-old was asked in school, this actually happened, what do you want to do when you grow up? The uh, eight-year-old said, I want to be on welfare. <laughs> uh, the teacher said, what, what do you mean? What, 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 why do you want? Well, my grandparents were on welfare. My mom was on welfare. You, you see, so, so here's essentially what welfare, when it's not necessary, does. It actually says to the recipient, I don't believe you have the capacity to take care of yourself. Therefore, I will. Now, that looks like you're helping, but you're really hurting. I think the welfare system is the worst form of slavery in American history because it, it enslaves people by, by lowering their expectations of themselves. Now, here's the deal. If you meet the needs of people who can meet their own needs, you are essentially saying to them, you need me to make a go out of, of life. You are becoming big daddy to a little child. That's a necessary thing. But when the little child is an adult, that's, that's psychological slavery. And then that adult, uh, that adult's expectation of what they can and cannot do has been so lowered by your entitlement plan they don't have an expectation of themselves of being gainfully employed and making a go of it. I remember when uh, my boys were 13, um, I prepared them for what we call bar mitzvah, son of the law. I changed, it's kind of a rite of passage. I changed the name to bar emunah, which means son of mercy. 
not of the law. And I would do training with them for a ceremony, but I also would use it as training in life. I would talk to them about sex. Um, I would talk to them about marriage. I would talk to them about managing finances, stuff. One of the things I spoke to them about is that they will be responsible to take care of us, their mom and dad, at a time when we cannot take care of ourselves. I said, do not blame that on the government. That's where your responsibility. So we're making sacrifices financially for you now. Glad to do it. And then the tables will be reversed later. You are our retirement plan. (laughs) That's essentially what I told them. I said, do not dump us on the church. Do not dump us on the government. It's you who have to take care of us. Then I also told them, Mom and I are going to make sacrifices to enable you, should you qualify, to go through college. Undergraduate education, debt-free. We're going to do that, no matter what it takes. But thereafter, you're on your own, meaning you have to find employment. If you choose schooling beyond that, that's wonderful, but that's on your own. We will not provide for it then. I let them know that at 13. They all did it. They all got through college. They all got through debt-free because we, we helped them. Um, if they chose to go on, that's on their own. But they all went and got jobs, and they're financially independent of us now. <clears throat> what if I said you can always count on us for a handout? I don't think they would have grown and developed because then dad would have given the message, I don't think you can make a go in life without me. So the very ones in government who are acting like they care about uh, a needy demographic do not. They're enslaving them. The entitlement plan reduces a person's ego strength to nothing. I can't make it unless you provide me my phone. That's a terrible, terrible, degrading way to be. I didn't say we shouldn't care for needy members of society. I didn't say that. I just said we shouldn't psychologically obligate people to incur a level of dependence on Big Daddy that they'll never, ever be able to get out of. An eight-year-old, third-generation welfare has no higher expectation, though his potential is great, than to be on welfare. That's our government. That's our government. Not good. The Bible says everyone should work with his or her own hands. I love our helping hands ministry here. I love the title. There are times when everyone needs a helping hand. I love it. But I love the way Dr. Jim Hastings and crew approach this. They don't just write the check because they care too much about people. They meet with people who have needs just to see, could we help you manage your resources? They may not be great. But oftentimes, mismanagement of resources has gotten a person into a rough situation. If you just resource them more, but you don't help them to manage their resources, have you really helped them? You've made them dependent on helping hands ministry. You see what I mean? You don't want that. You want to move people towards a level of independence so that they can work with their own hands. Simple words of counsel, but good night. It could straighten out our government, our entitlement programs, if, if we followed it. So, uh, anyway, and Paul has two reasons why he suggests this. Verse 12, here's the first. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders. Those are unbelievers. And number two, not be in any need. We have to win the respect of unsaved people so that they'll respect our Lord. Many people haven't rejected our Lord. They've rejected us. And in some cases, for good reason, because a lot of times we've been obnoxious, caustic, non-relational. We've not been very attractive people. I didn't say compromise our convictions. But relationally, a lot of us don't have good skills. A lot of us uh, are, uh, know how to preach truth, but we don't know how to listen. And so a lot of people have, 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 have shut us down entirely, and therefore with it goes uh, an audience to, 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 to win the gospel. So Paul is essentially saying here, you must win the respect of outsiders. You will not do it if they see you to be lazy and a bunch of freeloaders. That's why Paul is saying, work with your hands. If the community out there simply sees the church to be another social service agency and another entitlement program, 
where people are just milking the system, you'll lose the respect of people out there. So that's one reason why Paul says work with your hands a second, so that you won't be in any need. Every church, big and small, has limited resources. If, a, if one of us who ought to be working is instead exploiting the resources of the church, then those precious resources cannot be available to help someone with a real need. You see, what I, you see what's going on? Not me. This is what Paul says here. Therefore, he says, work with your hands. Now, I'm glad Paul opened this section. We're getting to a new section now. I'm glad he opened it with an exhortation to love one another as believers, as, as brethren. Why? Because the next session talks, section talks about future things. And it has the tendency to evoke animosity in the body of Christ. Because well-intentioned Christians have different points of view on what's happening next. Future things. Some are very divisive about it. Meaning, if you don't subscribe to my chronological order of future events, you're a lesser Christian than me, maybe not a Christian at all. So lots of fights, splits, and divisions have occurred with reference to the sequence of future events. So I'm glad Paul prefaced all this by saying, don't forget to love one another. So, so, so let me preface this by saying, um, there are certain biblical concepts t- which to me are non-negotiable. They're not up for grabs. Meaning, I don't think we can have true Christian fellowship with someone who doesn't subscribe to some of the things I'll tell you about. But just make sure you're not confusing your personal opinion with a biblical non-negotiable. Certain things are not up for grabs. Other things are just your take on a certain matter. And you have to be humble about that. When it comes to future things, a lot of our strong convictions are really, this is my opinion. It doesn't mean it's not valid, but, but your opinion does not hold the weight of a very clear biblical teaching. So you have to distinguish the two. Okay, with that as a preface... Take a look at verse 13. We, but we, do not want you, the Thessalonian believers, to be uninformed, brethren. There's something Paul wanted them to know, and you'll see it has to do with some future things. So some people say, I don't really care about the future. As mentioned in the Bible, it's just going to happen. Well, you're wrong about that. Paul wants you to be informed. But others go to the extreme where that's all they think about. I mean, prophecy is, is their whole deal. And uh, you, can, you, can get, you can get wet a balance in that regard. I want to show you here, you'll see Paul is not trying to be theological at all. He's trying to be pastoral here. Pastoral. I'll tell you what that means in a second. But, okay, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Who do you think Paul's talking about? Dead people? What kind of dead people? Christian dead people. Isn't this nice the way he refers to them as being those who have fallen asleep? You know why that's good? Sleep, generally, is temporary. I mean, after the class, after the sermon, you wake up. <laughs> Death is permanent. It's a, um, it's a figure of speech, but it expresses truth. Paul is saying to Thessalonians, who, you'll see, were concerned about the state of affairs of loved ones who died in Christ before them. They're new believers, these Thessalonians. They say, I know what's happening to me. You know, when Jesus comes, I'm going to be with him. But what about my grandmother who, who died 10 years ago? What happened to her? Is she going to miss out on a reunion with Christ? That's what they're concerned about. So Paul is saying, I, I want you to know what's going on with those who have fallen asleep. Why? So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So here... His point here in speaking about future things is not that we, with precision, have every every event, you know, time figured out, this happens and that happens. No, no, no. His, his, His intent is pastoral. I want to help you temper your grief. You shouldn't grieve over grandma, if she's a believer, as if you'll not see her again. Oh, no, she's only asleep. You will see her again. There are those who have no such hope of a reunion, of a resurrection. Have you gone to the funerals of unsaved people lately? It's hopeless. 
Christians not only are to live differently, we're to die well. It shouldn't be, oh no, I only got a little while left. Woe is me. Are you kidding? It ought to be, I'm, I'm anxious to see my Lord. It should even, it's different. I didn't say we should. Paul is saying you should grieve. That's emotion. But not with the grief with which unsaved people grieve. Why? Because we have the hope of reunion with loved ones who have passed away in Christ. So that's what he's sort of saying to the Thessalonian believers here. Someone said, for the Christian, death is about moving, not dying. That's what Paul's telling them. Even the body of your loved Christian relative uh, is in the grave, but, but the essence of the person is no longer there. They've moved. So death doesn't have the final word. So, so, so here's what he says. He says, be hopeful. They sleep. What sleeps? Their souls? No. There's something called soul sleep. Various cult groups hold to that notion. Soul sleep. Can't go into it in great detail. Only let me say, that's not true. What sleeps is the body of the person. What happens to the soul and spirit? Goes to be with the Lord. I'll show you that in, in just a second. So there are some who hold to the doctrine of soul sleep, even some who hold to the doctrine of purgatory or intermediate states. That's not true. It's absolutely not true. Those are interesting notions because then those groups can put pressure on you. You have to join our church or our group in order to pray for your deceased relatives to get them out of purgatory. Or you have to be baptized for the dead. That's done in Mormon uh, theology, by the way. You know, the Mormons are making an unbelievably powerful effort at looking like another Christian denomination. And all they have to do is get rid of their theology, and they can be. (laughs) Don't buy that. I don't have any animosity towards Mormon people. I mean, you know, Mitt Romney is a likable guy. I mean, there's nothing to do with that. And uh, the lifestyle is commendable. That's not the point. We've got to stop looking at appearances. By the way, the next president of the United States will probably be elected by media, not by message. Who looks good, who has a good sense of humor, who's articulate, whatever. I think that's how our present president got elected. He's attractive. So, so the average person who voted in the last election didn't have a clue as to what the platform of the president was. And neither do we. we so, so, so you see, uh, Mormon people, you say, well, why are you so cri-? I'm not critical about anything. I, I, I'm just telling you, examine Mormon theology. If you think it's part of uh, a Christian orthodoxy, okay. But I can show you, I can show you it's not. I mean, um, Mormon theology teaches that Lucifer is the brother of Jesus. Did you know that? Well, why don't we hear about that? Be- because media... <laughs> Is the message, and they know how to work the media. You just live well, have family-oriented evenings, you know. Don't, don't drink uh, Coke, you know, or coffee that, you know, uh, causes your teeth no longer to look as white, whatever. These are all good things. has nothing to do with anything. What is the belief system? So anyway, uh, there is no such thing as soul sleep. It's only the body that's laid to rest. There's no purgatory. There's no intermediate state. Look, here's the deal, folks. If you're a Christian, you are either here today or you're not here. You're with the Lord. That's it. How do I know that? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Everyone here is a Christian who is still with their body. Would you please raise your hand? Yeah, there you go. Okay, so I just found out. There's evidence. You're not yet with the Lord. When you can no longer raise your hand, you're with him. Those are the options. There's no intermediate state. That's it. So verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? Okay, that's one of the biblical non-negotiables. That is not up for grabs. That's not, well, I think this, you think that. 
No, no, no. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is one of those fundamentals of the faith that's not up for grabs. Folks, I don't see how you can have fellowship with someone calling themselves a Christian who denies the death, the burial, or the resurrection of the Savior. These things are not theoretical. This is what's called biblical orthodoxy. Okay, so since this is so sure and true, instead of for if we believe, the sense actually is for since we believe. Jesus died and rose again. Since we believe that, even so, or in the same manner, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, Here's where I find out, though the body is still there in the grave, the essence of the person has gone to be with Jesus. How else could he bring them with him? You see what I mean? If the soul is still sleeping in the grave with the body, then how could this verse be true? How could it be that a resurrected Savior will bring who died and rose again? How can he bring with him those who've fallen asleep? See see the phrase, with him? That means they're with him. That means even though the body's in the grave, the essence of the person is with him, and he's bringing them back. You see what I mean? So, so, and notice, fallen asleep. Death, oh, death, 1 Corinthians 15, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death has been removed. How? By a resurrected Savior. For those, this is important, who have fallen asleep in Jesus. You know what that means? Even Christians who die are still in Jesus. (laughs) Not even death can separate. Romans 8, last part of Romans 8. You know, who or what can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It lists a whole bunch of stuff, including death. If a person is in Christ Jesus, not even death can separate. What a hopeful thing to share with new Thessalonian believers. So so we've established this. If a Christian dies, the body is laid to rest, the soul, the spirit goes to be with the Lord. And since he has been raised from the dead, those who are in Christ Jesus share in his death, burial, and resurrection. They go immediately to be with him. So for these Thessalonians who are laboring under the misconception that their deceased Christian loved ones are not going to share in the resurrection. Paul is saying, are you kidding me? They got there first. They go immediately to be with the Lord. We have to wait our turn. So then it goes on, verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So this is not theoretical. This is Paul saying, God gave me this. That we who are alive and remain, does your Bible say we? You know what that means? Paul is including himself here. We, including me, Paul, who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. You know what he's hinting at? He's saying Jesus can return at any time. We who are alive and remain... When he returns, we who are alive and remain till the coming of the Lord won't precede those who have fallen asleep. Don't be nervous, Thessalonians. Those relatives of yours who have died before you in Christ, they go to be with him first. And then what happens next? We who are alive and remain until he comes, we won't precede those who have fallen asleep. Not only... Are they not second-class citizens? They get to be with him first. And he says, we, you know what he's hinting at? Something called the imminent return of Christ. Imminent meaning it could happen any day. Even in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, he lived with the hopeful expectation that Jesus could come uh, at any moment with those who have already died for those Christians who are still alive and remain. And he put himself... In that group, imminent return of Christ. What does that mean? Nothing more has to take place in order for Jesus to return for us. Nothing more. Nothing more. The rapture can take place at any time. What does that mean? It means be ready. Paul was ready 2,000 years ago. You say, oh man, he was ready for nothing. 2,000 years passed. 
No, 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 no. He, God wants us to live as if he's right at the door. He wants us to order our affairs in light of his soon return. Paul lived with that hopeful expectation, imminent return of Christ. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now, the only way he could descend if he, is if he has already ascended. So listen, he died. What's the proof that he died? He was buried. Then he was uh, resurrected. What's the proof that he was resurrected? Post-resurrection appearances and an empty tomb. Does that end the story? No, 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 no. He ascended into heaven. The ascension is really, really important. He wasn't resurrected to be here. He was resurrected to ascend to heaven. In a few weeks, Lord willing, uh, some of us, including those newlyweds, uh, you see those people there? That's Mr. and Mrs. Perkins, Jack and Martha. Look, look, look. Jack is unashamed. Martha, uh, not too sure. Um, <laughs> and they got married how long ago now? One week ago. <laughs> you know where? Right there at the cross. I was there. I got invited. And, and uh, anyway, Lord willing, we're going to Israel with others in a few weeks. And we will stand, Lord willing, on the Mount of Olives. Uh, and Tony, there's Tony and Katya. I didn't see you. I didn't call attention to you because you've been married like for a long time. And we will stand, Lord willing, on the Mount of Olives, which according to Acts is the place from which the Lord ascended visibly into heaven. Okay, so that's, that's why he can descend. That's why it says in verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Well, it'll be real subtle, won't it? Nope, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. What's the name of the archangel? You think Gabriel? Michael? Oh, Michael, excuse me. Um, what, what are the names of other archangels? You got Gabriel, you got Michael. Are there others? Who? Oh, really? That's one? Way to go. I have no idea. You forgive me. I don't really care. <laughs> um, I mean, some people, um, not you, but I mean, some people get so focused on certain things, you miss the forest for the trees. You know what's important here? Jesus is coming again. For the Lord himself will, let me ask you, let's do a poll here. Who here believes that Jesus is coming again? Yeah, me too. There you go. That's a non-negotiable. What the name of the archangel is? That's a negotiable. You know what I mean? You say Gabriel, someone else says Michael, someone else says George. I mean, okay, fine. You see how you can miss the forest for the trees? I don't know. Who knows these things with certainty? I didn't say they're uninteresting things. They're just non-essentials. And we can miss the essential. The essential thing is a hopeful expectation of Jesus' return. Anyway, voice of the archangel, trumpet, shofar, shofar. It's one of those... uh, Ram's horn things that Jews blow. And they did it all through the Old Testament to call people together. You know what I mean? So that's going to happen. Trumpet of God. And what's going to happen? The dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul offered this as a word of comfort to the Thessalonians. Don't worry about those who passed before you. They're going to rise up first. Rise in what sense? Well, here's the deal. Um, When Jesus returns, he will unite the souls and the spirits of deceased Christians with their bodies. That means if, if you die and your body's put in the grave, is it that body that you bring into, into heaven? No way. That body's gone. That's corroded. You know, worms eat it. it you know, they Folks, look, at our bodies are wonderful things, but they don't last many decades. Did you know that? So I have this pain thing here. So I go to the doctor. He says, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in quotes, he said. <laughs> I go to the doctor. He says, yeah, it's tennis elbow. I say, no, it can't be. I don't play tennis. <laughs> That's for girls, Brother Chuck. And so uh, he said, no, 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 no. It's just called that. You, you could you do anything. But, but, but it just started. I mean, you know, it just started. No, no, no. It's a cumulative effect of stuff. What? What are you saying? He said, I'm telling you, it's old age. That's what he told me. So I'm looking for a new doctor. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to pay good money to be insulted. I mean, like, here, let me ask you another thing. Do, is anyone here, do, do you walk sometimes and you have pains in your feet just by walking? Yeah, me too. So uh, it just started. So I went online to check it out. 
Did you know there's something called the plantar nerve? It's a crazy deal. It starts like up here. It goes under your foot. When I get to see the Lord, with respect, I'm going to say, God, why don't you put that nerve like under our feet? You know what I'm saying? Like we're stepping on it. You know, why don't you put it like on our ear or something like that? So, so I just found out there's like a nerve. And when you, I'm just walking and it hurts. You know what I mean? I'm not running. I'm not climbing mountains. It's a body. So today uh, my wife said, did you put on your facial cream? <laughs> what facial cream? She says, look at you. You're red. You're red. Said, what do you mean red? Yeah, it's rosacea. It's ro- rosacea. Here, I got this cream. Put on the rosacea cream. So it, it does nothing for the rosacea, but it, it uh, makes my wife go away. So I put, this thing, I put on anything. Just don't yell at me. Yeah, it's fine. Put it on, put it on, yeah, get the green. So look at that. I got the elbow. I got the feet. I got the this. You know what I mean? It's a, I thank God for the body, but it's just a thing. This is not fit for eternity, for crying out loud. That's the point. When you die, your body is there. It gets worse the longer it's in the grave. I don't know if you knew this. So when the Lord returns, he brings your soul back, unites you with a new body, glorified. It's called fit for eternity. So God is saying to, th- to the Thessalonians, hey, don't worry about grandma who went before you in Christ. You're kidding me. She's in good shape. Her soul and spirit is with the Lord now. Yours is not. Hers is, and. And she's getting a new body, you know, none, none, none of that hip stuff and wheelchair stuff and, you know, whatever. She's getting a, everything. So he says, and by the way, you know, that's his whole point in writing what he did. He's not writing as, as a theologian. He's writing as a pastor. He wants to encourage them. So you know what we do? We're trying to squeeze out of this text with precision, details and sequences. That's not, that wasn't even in Paul's mind. He just wants to encourage believers. Yeah, grieve. You miss your grandmother. But don't worry. You're going to be reunited with her. That's his point here. You know what I mean? So then he, he, he brings up this verse uh, 17, which is a big cause of uh, uh, argument, contention in the body of Christ. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain, so he's putting himself in that group again, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. See the, see the two words, caught up? Would anyone like to guess as to what word that is in Latin? That's the word rapturo, from which we get the word rapture. So there are th- those who say the rapture is out to lunch. This, it's not even mentioned in the Bible. Well, if you don't hold to the rapture, that's okay. But that's a very poor argument. It is mentioned in the Bible. That's what caught up means, to be raptured. By the way, you know what that means to be caught up? Uh, it means actually to be seized upon, to be dragged out. You say, well, that can't be right. I mean, when the Lord returns, we're going to be anxious to go with him. Don't be so sure. Remember when Israel was carried off into Babylonian captivity a million years ago when it was time to go home? A lot of them didn't want to. Why? You just get used to your lifestyle. You know, you say, oh, my goodness, Lord, thanks for coming. But now I just fertilize the lawn. <laughs> So he's going to say, hey, 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 I'm grabbing on. You're mine. I'm pulling you out of here. That's what the rapture is. So, so, so we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, the them, Christians, who have gone before us. With them. Thessalonians, don't worry. You're going to see friends and relatives who have died in Christ before you. We're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And what's the result? We will always be with the Lord. Okay, look. Well-intentioned, good Christians don't believe that is talking about the rapture. To which I say, I don't agree. But, but let's be agreeable. That is not, to me, a, uh, a non-negotiable. Now, those who deny this rapture, here's what often they say. They say, no, no, no. The coming of Christ and the so-called rapture are the same event. Uh, I'm not one who holds to that. Now, here's the difference. At the rapture, if you believe in it, the Lord comes for his believers and meets them not on earth, but as it says, in the air. At the second coming, the Lord comes back with his believers for, uh, I I mean, to, to be reunited with others here on earth. The rapture is a glorious event removing my take on this. You don't have to buy it. 
believers from tribulation to come. When the Lord returns, it is to judge a sinful world. Totally different things. So the reason why I separate the two events is, if you have no rapture, how do you account for uh, the millennial reign of Christ, 1,000 years, and what's called the tribulation period? And how do you... What is the period of time when God fulfills his promises to Israel? Israel is in the land today, but not in belief, in unbelief. But the Bible says, and in that day, all Israel will be saved. We're not in that day yet. That comes after the tribulation period. Now, those who combine the rapture with the second coming are usually what we would call amillennialists. They don't believe in a little 1,000-year reign. I think that's wrong, but you can still be a believer and hold to it. So I'm a guy who holds to what's called the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, meaning before not all tribulation, a seven-year period of great tribulation, I think we're removed. How did I get this? Well, Revelation says that we're spared from the wrath to come. The time of the tribulation is the outpouring of God's wrath. He doesn't pour out his wrath on his kids. Why not? He already poured out his wrath on his son for all of us. So I'm one who holds to the pre-tribulational rapture of the church and the pre-millennial return of Christ. Not everyone holds to that. As I say, some don't believe in a millennium at all. Some believe he comes at the end of the millennial period, post-millennium. Some don't believe in a pre-tribulation. They they believe in mid-tribulation. I don't think that's so wrong, meaning in the three-and-a-half-year point, in the seven-year tribulation period, that's when the Lord raptures the church. Okay, here's the deal. To me, all those things are negotiable. I I think the position I just shared with you, to me, best accounts for the totality of biblical data on these issues. To me, if it's not that way to you, but if you be, or me, if we be divide over it, we become argumentative, we sow seeds of disharmony in a church, then we're missing the whole point of Paul here. I offered you this that you might be comforted and have hope, not divisions and arguments and all this. So I'm not making those things a test a fellowship with someone, I hope you don't either. You can get carried away, folks. You can get too carried away here. By the way, the only one who knows for sure what the future holds is the one who holds the future. The Bible says of uh, Jesus, that he, of God, that he sees the end from the beginning. But I don't, neither do you. So we do the best we can at extracting biblical truth. We know the broad strokes. Jesus is coming again. We will be with him forever. Those who are deceased in Christ, since they're still in Christ, will not be held in the grave. There'll be a great time of reunion with all of us who are believers and the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that stuff. I have an idea of some of the other things. Uh, I just don't want to be unduly argumentative about it. So, So Paul goes on here to say, verse 18, therefore... Comfort one another with these words. He does not say divide from one another with these words. Put down one another. Have disdain for one another. (laughs) He says comfort one another with these words. Some people have made it their ambition in Christ to be so-called prophecy experts. There are those. But, but, But others are confusing their personal take about future events with what the scripture makes clear. And it doesn't make clear all things about future events. So Paul says, don't worry about the, 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 the details to this, the that, the day. You know, there are some here are, are lathered up about four blood moons and all this other kind of stuff, and you've bought the books already. Haven't you learned enough already by the kook books that have gone before this one that have left us with mud on our face? stating the time of the Lord's return and the Bible codes and 88 reasons why Jesus is returning on such and such. I'll tell you what's a non-negotiable. Nobody knows, not even the sun. Did you know that? That's what the scripture says. So if the sun doesn't even know the time of his return, why am I wasting my time trying to calculate it? And why am I wasting money on buying the book of someone who claims to have done it? 
Folks, I'll tell you, uh, those people who think these blood moons are, gonna, are, are communicating something, they're going to win. Why? There's always something of significance happening every moment of the day. For crying out loud, that could always, something very good is going to come into your life. Well, yeah, you get a parking spot at Bay Area Mall during Christmas. Is that it? That's a good, something very bad is going to come. Yeah, 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 everyone could win on those things. There's always good stuff and bad stuff coming into your life. And on an international scale, since the world is such a close community, I mean, we find out what's happening in Greece and Japan and all the... I didn't even know those countries existed when I was a kid. And now you find out everything. You know, we're all tied together. So when people... Be careful about reading into the stars things that are highly speculative. You know what usually happens? After people make tons of money on these books, nobody does a fact check and holds them accountable for it. So they just write another one after that. Folks, don't do that. We're getting the broad strokes here. Don't, make, don't squeeze out of the Bible more than what God gives. You know what he gives? Jesus is coming again. Death did not have the final word. If you are in Christ Jesus, your death is not the final pronouncement either. No, no, no. If you die before he returns, it's just your body that's left behind. You go immediately to be with him. But if you are alive and remain when he returns, it's going to be a great union with those who've gone before, and you're going to meet the Lord one way or the other. And what's the effect? I mean, you're going to be with him forever. But maybe it's just me. That's sort of enough for me to be very, very hopeful about the future and to be comforted uh, about it. Now, there are some with all due respect, who are much more intellectually, uh, uh, analytically um, um, made. Okay, go for it. But don't miss Paul's point. Comfort one another with these words. You know, your big tomes on eschatology with every, you know, there's no comfort in those. I mean, I I just, uh, I don't get the point of all that, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So there you have it. I have succeeded in so monopolizing the time that you're, there's no time for questions. Well, I, mean, I don't have answers. Who has, you know, I don't, you know but what about the this and the that? I, I did a series one time called The Future. It's on our website. Uh, and if you're interested, you could listen to it. And there I gave my best shot at placing the events, future events chronologically. So it's not like I'm wishy-washy about it. I just don't want to fight about it. That's all. Okay, there you have it. I know one thing, I'm praying for the rapture before the next class. <laughs> but if, and if the rapture happens before the next class, then Brother Chuck will teach it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Lord Jesus, thank you for coming as lamb to suffer and die. And Lord Jesus, thank you for coming again as Lion of Judah to judge. Thank you for coming the first time to judge sin. We expect you to come the second time, oh God, to judge sinners. Thank you that those of us who by your grace have been able to embrace the significance of your first coming can be excited about your second coming. Nothing to fear. We can offer comfort to one another. In fact, we can say, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even so, come quickly. And this we pray in your name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Hope to see you next time. <laughs>